Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at all things crypto. We're going to be looking at the changes that have happened in the last 12 months, looking at how it's properly starting to have a real world impact, looking at the skeptics out there asking the big questions, why does crypto matter? Does it still matter if the price moves? Also, we have a big announcement, so stay tuned for that. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. To dig into this, my goodness, am I joined by some fantastic guests. Making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Shivani Sharoya, who is the CEO and founder of Tala. Welcome to the show, Shivani. Can you tell everybody a little bit about Tala and what you guys do? Sure. So we are a global personal finance app that is really focused on accelerating financial agency for the global underbanked. And we started out by providing credit to now over 6 million customers across our four markets of Kenya, Philippines, Mexico, and also now a growing presence in India. We've delivered over $2.5 billion in credit to these customers. And now we are moving beyond that to now offer our customers the ability to use their money, protect their money, and grow their money within our application. From all of us here, we love that you're doing that. Thank you for fighting the good fight for, for fintech. Um, we're, we're excited to also have alongside Shivani, Diego Monica, who is co-founder and president of Anchorage. How are you doing, sir? Doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can you remind everybody what Anchorage does? Yes. Anchorage is the first federally chartered crypto bank in the United States. We allow institutions to have the infrastructure and the services that they need to build products in crypto. And what I mean are services like custody, brokerage, lending, borrowing, staking, governance, and in general, participating in blockchains. Uh, we are, as I mentioned, a federally chartered bank, and we help these institutions build products anywhere from a small crypto fund, hedge fund, all the way to a large corporate such as Visa. Indeed. Well, and finally, making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Kai Sheffield, who's head of crypto at Visa, welcome to the show. It's been a huge year in crypto generally, and specifically for Visa. Uh, we're excited to hear more about Visa's huge strides in the crypto space as we go through the show, but thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here. Excited for the show. Let's dig right in. So in the first part of the show, we wanted to take a look at just how far we've come in the last 12 months. My goodness, it's been quite the 12 months, hasn't it? Not just in terms of price moves, but also real step forward in terms of adoption and every other meme you see on Twitter. So um, I'm going to start with you, Kai. Um, what does this really, as you stand back from the market, what's the last 12 months really meant? What's been your favorite moment? What's been the thing that really stood out? Wow, it's it's hard to even know you know where to to start. I think first we've just seen this this continued trend of you know Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies being incorporated into mainstream fintech and financial products. So I think the excitement around you know PayPal and Venmo announcing that they were adding you know Bitcoin, we've seen for a while the growth of of Cash App and their Bitcoin feature. 
And we're starting to see these lines between fintech and crypto and banking start to blur with more and more mainstream consumer products that are coming out. In addition to, you know, this, you know, the original class of crypto exchanges like Coinbase just growing rapidly. And so it seems like, you know, crypto has just become more and more accessible to mainstream consumers throughout these products. Indeed. And of course, Diogo, we did see Coinbase hit IPO and valued at nearly 100 billion. But surely, especially with everything that's happening, is this all just a bubble? Um, should we forget about it now if the price is moving down? Uh, the price isn't really relevant, uh, especially for Anchorage. We just we primarily work with institutions, and that's our focus. And institutions mm -hmm. have very long-term horizons. They're not thinking about this in a month. They're looking at this in a decade view. And in fact, if anything, over the past 12 months, we've seen in terms of absolute number and in terms of interesting projects, we've seen an absolute massive growth. It is not just the fintechs that want to compete against PayPal and that they want to compete against Square Cash and see the growth. They are looking at this. They're looking at the millennials. They want that relationship. They're worried about this many trillion dollar wealth transfer from baby boomers to millennials and see that they have affinity towards crypto and eschew these centralized, big, uh, traditional players. So they want to capture that relationship. And to do so, they need to add crypto to their products. It is no longer an option. It is now required for them to do so along these traditional products. So that's been very interesting. The other interesting thing is also the bulge bracket banks. They've been coming into this space in a very meaningful manner. And in 2017, they were coming to Anchorage and asking us, what should we do in crypto? And in 2020 and 2021, they're coming to Anchorage and saying, this is what I want to do in crypto. This is the exact type of service and product I want to offer. How can you help? And that's just a major, major shift in terms of behavior. Indeed. Um, Shivani, though, as I look at this, it, there's a couple of things there from institutions to sort of thinking about uh, marketing as, as a financial institution and also fintech apps. But what about the consumer problem space? Because actually, all of this is, is useless if it doesn't solve a real problem. So what problems can you actually solve with crypto today? So I'd say one thing uh, just to touch on, you know, what's been exciting in the last 12 months is what we're really seeing is also that emerging markets adoption of crypto has enormously increased. You know, the Philippines, uh, which was our second market that we entered and is one of our you know, biggest growth markets, is now, I think, number one in terms of crypto adoption around the world. Um, so in that sense, it's not just U.S.-based consumers that are starting to adopt this and, and get interested in it and to think about, you know, what can they gain from this? And so I think that's really exciting. To your point on the consumer side and the usability, um, I think we're thinking about two major use cases, the first of which is really around movement of money or cross-border payments. And so thinking about international remittances, domestic remittances, as well as P2P, um, and helping, again, bring down the cost considerably for these consumers and also increase the efficiency, right? And so um, both for the sender and the receiver, there is a way to actually not need to now go to a third party, um, as well as now have cheaper off-ramp options. The other thing we're thinking a lot about is how do we earn yields for our customers? And so again, the underserved customer doesn't necessarily even need to interact with crypto. They're already saving with Tala and on behalf of them, we are able to then generate yield at much more stable returns in some ways and provide that back to our customers. And that can then be kind of the step one of getting customers to really use and interact with crypto. 
I, I love that point about sort of um, the excluded, not necessarily being able to have real savings at any point and the cost of moving money cross border. But Kai, what is it that's made it possible to actually move this? Because everybody always used to look at Bitcoin and say, well, it's incredibly slow. It's incredibly expensive. Talk to me a little bit about stable coins and, and what that's enabled. Yeah, I, I think that's been one of the biggest trends of the year of, you know, we were at, I think it was about $25 billion dollars of stablecoins in circulation near end of last year, we then hit 50 billion in circulation, you know, just a few months later. Now we just crossed a hundred billion dollars of stablecoins in circulation. And so really this transition from crypto just being kind of these new assets that are volatile and fluctuate against existing fiat currencies to now it's almost like crypto is becoming a new form factor for existing fiat currencies like the dollar. And so for us, we think Stable coins are making public blockchains pretty useful as payment rails, where now you have all this infrastructure that's been built out, you know, all of these crypto wallets, and you can transfer fiat between them. And that enables, you know, entrepreneurs to create, you know, many new amazing products that, you know, are more focused on payments than just investing as some of the, the cryptocurrencies initially gained adoption around. And this all sounds fantastic. And I can hear the banker in the back of my head, though, sort of saying, but what about volatility? What about regulation? Shivani, how do you think about that from a consumer perspective? Is there a role for um, businesses to play on, on the consumer protection side here? And, and is there a real concern that, that that banker would have that's legitimate? I mean, in some ways, in terms of what you see on the regulatory side happening in emerging markets, especially in East Africa, um, you actually see governments in, in a sense actually promoting the adoption of crypto because it actually allows for more transparency around identity verification, allows them to understand who is receiving education, who actually has access to mobile devices. And so in some ways, we're actually able to provide better services as a result of the transparency, I think, that can be brought out by crypto. Diogo, you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, definitely wanted to jump in. Look, it has always been a step forward in the industry. Um, these are hard problems. Regulation is something that changes very little. So when there is actual regulation that comes into the space, it stays for a long time. And I don't envy the job of the regulator that needs to keep up with a space that, by the way, it's hard to keep up even if you're full-time in the space. And I can, I think you can ask both Shivani and Kai, it is impossible, straight up impossible to actually keep track of everything that is happening, which, by the way, is also one of the most exciting things that are happening. But personally, I think I was really excited this year for the OCC to actually release the first federal charter and Anchorage obviously benefited from it by being the first ones. This is a very clear message that we want this type of infrastructure to be within the same regulatory regime with the same level of scrutiny and meeting this high bar that other banks uh, like BNY Mellon and like JPMorgan Chase and so on actually have in the traditional world. So that was a huge step forward and there will be other steps forward. I think the major issue with crypto is that it moves faster than we can possibly keep up with regulation. So we'll always be at a deficit there. Yeah, no, that's a powerful point is that it's, it's moving faster. But also, uh, I think the further away you are from it, the scarier it looks. And the closer you are, the more transparency there is. And you've got more of a privacy problem with crypto than you do um, a transparency problem. And I think that's quite an interesting balance to, to sort of think about. Diogo, I'm, I'm going to stick with you for a second, and I'm going to ask the um, the three-letter acronym that's been on everyone's lips this year is NFTs. Could you define that for me and talk a little bit about why um, we've moved on from CryptoKitties to Sotheby and what's a Beeple? 
Yeah, so NFTs mean non-fungible tokens, and they became popular with CryptoKitties as one of the first use cases. Uh, essentially, what they are are a registry of ownership of an asset that is not fungible in nature. And what I mean by not fungible, a painting, a specific painting, um, the Mona Lisa is not fungible in the sense that it cannot be replaced by some other painting from the same artist, right? So the ownership record is something that you can do through a non-fungible token. And it might be just um, a bad acronym. We, we could have called it many other things. But effectively what they're playing, they're playing into this instinct that humans have of collecting things, collecting Magic the Gathering cards or Pokemon cards or baseball cards and trading them and being able to effectively have this uniqueness of their personality and their interests be represented by what they own and by what they can demonstrate to other people. So it is the same instinct of showing someone a painting that you really like in your home or showing somebody your baseball card collection is the same instinct that is now being digitized and has all these advantages of having access to an open market, a completely liquid open market that allows you to transfer ownership instantly and allows you to have very easy marketplaces that buy and sell and price things in real time. So it really is collection on supercharging collection and collector's ability of having these digital items. And then we can talk about how that can represent real assets and can actually be a register of ownership and how we can also talk about a mortgage and the ownership of a house actually being something that could be NFT'd. Or we can just go to the digital forum and talk about how you can have the rights or effectively the autograph uh, to um, NBA video. And that, that's also very exciting for a lot of collectors to have. This Kai, there's collectors um, collecting things, but there's also the automation of software that you can do on the back of the NFT. So it can it can do more than just be um, sort of a thing that you have and own. It can grant you access to things. It can allow, um, for example, the uh, owner every time the uh, the ownership is transferred automatically can receive a percentage of that sale. So if I created a piece of art and sold it for ten dollars, if it gets sold tomorrow for a hundred dollars, I don't get any of that. But with an NFT, I do. And I think that's quite powerful. Yeah, yeah. I'd say we are incredibly excited about NFTs. And we think that this is kind of both a new form factor for digital media, and it's it's starting to look like a new type of, of e-commerce. Uh, and so I like to use this comparison of we're used to e-commerce, you know, you're selling a physical good, you're shipping it to a physical address. Now the crypto wallet is becoming this place that you hold these digital goods. And so you're purchasing an NFT, it arrives, it's shipped to your crypto address. Uh, and so we're seeing you know, all of these new experiences that are, are being built. And I think a lot about you know, how this is built upon what's happened in the gaming industry, where we had kind of closed loop digital goods, they stayed inside of a game. You, know, you couldn't really resell them, there wasn't a lot you could do with them. Now NFTs are kind of open loop digital goods. You could take them with you all across the internet, you know, you can easily sell them, you could build experiences on top of them. And so we think that there's going to be some major brands and commerce experiences that are created. And it, it also brings new people into crypto. You know, there are creatives and, and people who weren't interested in investing that are now setting up crypto wallets because this gives them a, a new tool to express their, their creativity. I really liked to tweet, I think it was from Patrick Riviera, it might have been Jesse Walden, who who had a piece that said, um, if DeFi, which we'll come on to, is money Legos, then uh, NFTs are media Legos. And I thought that was just a fantastic way to think about it. And the other way to think about um, DeFi and NFTs that I really liked, and, and I, I will credit whoever said it if I can find it, is that um, there's no way that Robinhood could build something that um, Wealthfront 
could then use as a feature. So if Robinhood builds a feature, Wealthfront can't use that feature. They have to build it themselves. But in crypto, if somebody builds a feature, then somebody else who has nothing to do with them can completely consume that capability. And that sort of is genuinely open and modular in a way that finance really wasn't before. Diogo, you want us to jump in there? No, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the major differences in crypto, and part of the reason why this is so exciting, is because of those three characteristics. The first one is transparency. I can see everything that is happening. Not only I can see everything that is happening, if something is working, I can immediately see that it's working and how it's working. I can have access to the source code, can have access to the smart contract. So transparency is number one. The second one is composability. I can actually use all of these building blocks across all of the ecosystem and benefit from the network effects of each network. I can compose these different things. Oh, there's the money building block. There is the store value building block. There's the decentralized exchange building block. That is the insurance building block. That is all of these building blocks can be composed in new ways. And then the final one, and is one of the most important ones, is the permissionless nature of it. It is the fact that I have to ask for permission to no one to effectively take a deposit of a stablecoin or generate yield for a stablecoin or actually just have a wallet, like Kai said, that collects non-fungible tokens at the same at the same pace that it collects real money, real hard money. So that those are the three characteristics: the transparency, the composability, and the permissionless that make this so exciting and make the iteration be a thousand times faster than the traditional markets. I would totally agree with that. I think you know um, where I was going with it was also thinking about you know anything actually can now be an asset in that sense, right? So if we think about it as truly decentralized you know, we are able to actually think of connecting entrepreneurs in emerging markets to lenders here in the US or around the world. And that's never been done. That level of transparency, that level of connection, and that I think kind of level of being able to build communities around social issues, around specific kinds of groups that want to be served. um, I think we're just able to take that to another level. And to really, again, be able to actually create the connection and that transparency that has never been done if we think about in the you know, NGO world, the development world, right? Knowing how your money is actually being used and the impact it's having, um, I think we're actually able to take that to, to really the next level of where we want to get to, which should actually put more power in the individual's hands that are receiving the capital. Yeah, I think that transparency thing comes back to it again, sort of um, the NGO world. Uh, you put money in at the top and you've almost got no way of knowing what impact it has and measuring it at, at the bottom end. It's one of the most heartbreaking things about working in that sector at all. And actually to to be able to see, you don't necessarily know who's got the money um, because uh, cryptocurrencies are pseudonymous, not anonymous. Um, but you know that somebody got it roughly where they are and the type of behavior that you see thereafter because the entire network is transparent to everybody, which is which is super, super powerful. Um, one last definition, um, and then we'll jump into the, the next piece of the show. Um, I'm going to ask Kai to define DeFi for me. Oh, I, I get the, the hardest one here. I, I'm going to have to steal the just the description that I, I think it was the electric capital team that, that really talked about DeFi as kind of GitHub for finance, where, you know, the smartest developers in the world, they used to go work for a bank. They would build whatever product uh, they could get approval for inside of that bank, complex derivatives, you know, lending products. Now they write code in Solidity and, you know, any product they can imagine, they could just, you know, publish to the Ethereum blockchain. 
And so what it really does is it lowers the barrier to entry to creating a new financial service. And as Diogo, you mentioned, there's this composable nature where any financial service that's built can then be you know, stacked together and, and built on top of. And so, you know, seeing you know, what's happened with some of the lending protocols, uh, some of the decentralized exchanges, you know, there's now a new model for building financial services. And I feel like that is something that that just has you know a ton of implications when you know it's not just a bank, it's not just a non-bank fintech. It's now could be an individual software developer who now has the power and the leverage to build a platform that millions of people can use for a financial service. The the regulator in me and the cynic in me is saying, surely that software developer could get a lot wrong and do a lot of damage with that as well, though, Kai. Right? I mean, how do we how do we mitigate against that? How do we prevent that? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the challenges here, and that it's still early. Uh, it's experimental. You know, there's a ton of risk, but there is that transparency. Uh, and so, really, it's not just one developer. It's it's an entire open source community. Everyone can see the code. Everyone can audit it. Uh, and so, you know, over time, you know, there are going to be protocols that completely fail and that have bugs, but there are going to be others that can persist and survive and get stronger as a community comes into it. That anti fragility point, Diogo. Yeah, no, I would just point out that it's actually no different from the traditional world in which companies try things, except that companies are non-transparent about it and they only publish good news. And so you actually don't know what is working and what is not working. So in fact, DeFi is exactly the same thing, except the iteration is just so much faster and something that fails, fails fast, which, you know, Silicon Valley ethos is about failing fast and about people learning from your mistakes and taking what was good and actually iterating on what was not good. And what we're seeing this, we're seeing this two orders of magnitude or three orders of magnitude faster. That's actually incredibly beneficial. So you might not want to be the alpha adopter of a new uh, balancer protocol or DeFi protocol, but you know that when it actually got to you, if it has a hundred billion dollars of uh, total locked value of TLV, then you know that there's been a robust set of people trying to steal that money and thus uh, that the protocol has actually survived for, for for a long duration of time and is robust from a security and safety perspective. And, and I agree with that. I think the thing I think about also is that we do need, I, I'm curious from the group as well, but I think we need kind of, uh, I would say, non-blockchain brands actually being willing to come into the ecosystems because from from the developer side, I think, yes, the community can actually vet it. Um, I think we can see the bugs. I think we can see the metrics there. But from the consumer side, right? And again, consumers that are, again, not buying and trading crypto, um, you do need a bridge. Um, and you need, you know, the visas of the world. You need the talas of the world, the folks that are actually serving the, the demographic to then be able to act as the bridge to, act, I think, actually really create the trust. I, mean, I think I want to I want to come back to that point, Shivani, in, in the next uh, section of the show. Um, but before I do, I just want to plug the big announcement that we announced at the, the top of the show, or we foreshadowed. Kai, um, we're bringing back Blockchain Insider on July the 14th. We're going to talk and deep dive into all kinds of stuff. And um, we've got a new co-host. Who's the co-host? I'm incredibly excited to to be you know, working with, with you, Simon. And, and I think that there's so much to talk about this intersection of, of fintech you know, stable coins, DAOs, NFTs, DeFi. Uh, so we have some great guests and, and it's going to be fun. And we're going to bring our favorite cynic to as many shows as we can. And we're going to have the debate and we're going to try and get through this stuff because it's right that we debate this stuff. And also, just before we move to the ad break, it might be just worth talking about one or two things that Visa has been up to recently. Yeah, sure. So, so I think we started, we set up a, a crypto product team you know, back in 2019 and we we're really looking at this industry and saying, 
you know, crypto wallets and exchanges, you know, they're starting to look like the next generation of neobanks. Uh, and so we wanted Visa to be a bridge between these new crypto wallets and our network of 70 million merchants. And so we have over 50 crypto wallets that are in various stages of issuing cards with Visa. Uh, so we think that you know, we can help be that bridge and, and off-ramp. And then recently, uh, we announced a, a, a partnership with, with Diogo and, and Anchorage, where we're building a set of Visa crypto APIs, where we can help our network of existing banks uh, that are you know, looking at how do we compete with fintechs? How do we integrate crypto? And we're going to be providing value-add services uh, to help those banks, you know, build products on, on top of crypto. And so, you know, we're really excited about this ecosystem and want Visa to, to serve as a bridge, you know, between both. I love that. On our front, we need them and we need to bridge that. And, and to Shivani's point, we need brands that consumers recognize and understand to help us deal with some of the risks that are real. Um, and as Diogo says, it's, it is still early and we're going to deal with that. All right, we're going to take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single source data and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioral intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.yougov.com. Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. Welcome back to the show. In the second half of the show, we're going to ask that age-old question. Is it mainstream yet? Have we crossed the chasm? And should the FS industry be paying attention? So quick straw poll, yes or no, Shivani, is crypto mainstream? Yes. Ooh, you thought about it, though. That was like a maybe. All right, we'll come on back that in a second. It was a maybe. Yeah, that's in the middle. All right, that's the, it's the gladiator thing. Thumbs in the middle. Um, Kai, is crypto mainstream? Absolutely. Uh, Diogo? Oh, Definitely, yes. I'm going to come back to Shivani. Why were you like thumbs in the middle on this? Uh, I think it's what we've been discussing, which is, yes, it is in markets like the US or more developed markets. But I would say that we still really need to be thoughtful about emerging markets regulation, usability of crypto in these markets, building the trust, building the bridges um, with the right brands that are already a part of the daily life of this consumer. And so the majority of the world does live outside of the developed markets. And so I think that's why I'm a yes, very proponent of the fact that I want this to be mainstream, but I don't think we're there yet. Uh, so with another hat on, um, I'm a fan of an organization called Global Digital Finance, and we work a lot with uh, the OECD, helping various administrations take best practices from from 
some developed markets and produce a global high watermark of what good crypto, both policy and also um, industry standards should look like. And, and here, here it, it's a consistent problem and that, that we really need that. And it's the old crossing the chasm thing. Maybe we've hit the, the innovators, maybe we've hit the early adopters, and maybe even some beyond that, but it depends on which market and for which product. So I think that's, that's going to change over time. Um, Kai, at the outset, you mentioned sort of these um, legacy fintech companies, if I dare call them that, that are adopting it. So I think about Robinhood, I think about Square, I think about PayPal, you know, companies that have done incredible things in the last 10 years and continue to grow. Why are they adding crypto to their offering? Is it just marketing or is there something more going on here? Yeah, I, I think that it's it's really a, a, a smart, you know, recognition that, you know, consumer interest is is growing and, you know, particularly for millennial and, and Gen Z consumers, you know, crypto is 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 a new asset class uh, that I think offers some things that traditional assets, you know, don't. I think one thing that people miss is like crypto is fun. It's exciting. Like it's cool. It has these elements that, you know, it's more social and cultural and appeals to a group of people who aren't, you know, looking through income statements and like, you know, doing fundamental analysis of, of companies. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, and I think what we've seen is that, you know, adding crypto into existing financial services, you know, it drives engagement that people are coming back and opening the app more. It's driving customer acquisition. And so it's it's becoming more of this mainstream feature uh, that we're seeing, you know, just continued demand, you know, starting with forward thinking neobanks and, and fintechs to say, you know, instead of if a consumer wants crypto, instead of letting them download a new crypto exchange, why can't we provide them access to crypto next to their same financial accounts, get them more engaged and then offer them other financial products around that? It, Shivani, uh, again, I'm going to play the cynic. If there's a real risk of price moving down as well as up, especially with some of the large cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and, and other things, if Elon Musk can make a tweet and move the price, um, if I'm sitting in the SEC and the SEC was set up after the 1929 crash when you know the consumer was really hurt, retail was really the most hurt because they'd come into a speculative bubble, they'd been really, really burned. You know, is there is there real risk out there that we're making it too easy that this is like gambling and and what can we do to manage that? Well, I think that's why um, you know what I'm suggesting is essentially you know I would say the fintech or the brand that has the relationship in some ways acting as the bridge and to actually do the yield farming for the consumer, right? And so to be able to actually provide some sort of stability to what they're earning on their savings. And then if there is an appetite to be really transparent and say, here are the risks, but here is what you could potentially earn. But I would say, you know, for, for the underserved consumer, they're more looking to just be able to earn more on their capital, to be able to grow their money. And so I don't think adding volatility is going to be a, a way to actually increase that trust in the beginning days. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really interesting point. We can separate two things. There's the trading speculating, and then there's the buying the asset. And actually, it's probably three things. Trading speculating, there's buying the asset to hold it. And then there's the third thing, which is actually... Um, having a sort of product that feels like savings. And actually what you're doing is you're putting away money and, and somebody like Tyler, an intermediary, is paying you an APY on that. And so that, and they're taking the risk, not the consumer. So there's actually a, a, this menu of options we have really to, to help the consumer um, and maybe sort of getting them hooked on, you know, the next meme stock and and, and charting is, is not the thing. But we have also seen that become culture and maybe the consumer financial education of, 
of of being excited by it and it being more of a part of it is a useful thing on some level. Diogo, how do you think about that trade-off between sort of financial inclusion, financialization of culture and consumer protection? Yeah, so I think consumer protection is extremely important. You know, part of the reason why Anchorage, we have done two things really well. We have built the best security technology for custody, trading, uh, lending, et cetera. But we've also gone and gone ahead and done the hardest thing in crypto, which is getting a federal charter. So those two things are extremely hard on their own, but collectively they actually give the trust and uh, actually allow people to use in a safe manner. So this this has always been about consumer protection because what we do is we serve institutions, um, institutions like Tala that can actually build products on top of Anchorage. In fact, this use case that we're talking about has been one of the most exciting use cases over the past nine months. Institutions are coming to Anchorage to use our yield generating opportunities. We generate yield for US dollars in stable coins. So they can actually use our building block. Uh, we, we call them um, these building boxes. They, they can put money in this building box and they can actually get and extract yields. So their consumer's crypto can be lent out or their actual uh, stable coins can be lent out and generate yield. And then the company can actually build the APY on whatever product they have. But I think the, the point that I want to drive here that is incredibly interesting is that crypto is not just creating new types of products that haven't existed and haven't been possible in the traditional market. I think the most powerful thing is that crypto is allowing a better, faster way of building the current sets of products that actually exist in the traditional world. We do have checking accounts. We do have savings accounts. The main difference is that a savings account in the traditional world generates zero yield and a tr an account in crypto generates seven to nine percent. And so it is the same product. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're just taking advantage of the, the way that things work to actually give consumers something that they want. In fact, I'll go one step further. Something that is happening that is absolutely unique is the fact that there are neobanks let's call them neo-neobanks, or maybe call them crypto-neobanks. We still need a word for it. I'm sure Kai will help me and, uh, <laughs> and he will help me with coming up with a word. Yeah, creo banks, whatever it is. But think about this. Think about a company that gets founded in fundraises and stablecoins, pays salaries and stablecoins, creates products, financial products, effectively a banking product with the stablecoin-backed checking account, a stablecoin-backed savings account, they add a store of value component by allowing them and the consumer to buy Bitcoin. They can do peer-to-peer -peer payments by actually sending peer-to-peer -peer money on this app. And they can issue a Visa credential, spend all of their money across 70 million merchants around in the world, and settle directly with Visa in stablecoin. At no point did this company ever touch a bank or fiat. They did not ask any authorization they have to pay, they do not have to ask for permission. They are end-to-end -end in crypto, offering the same sets of services that an app serves them today. So at the end of the day, if you're a millennial, if you're, if you're any consumer, you have your iPhone and your iPhone has two apps. And one is the traditional one that you look at, uh, except that the difference between them is they have the exact same sets of products, but one generates 79% a year and the other one doesn't. Yes, one is FDIC insured, which we talk about, uh, and the other one isn't, but consumers haven't really seen any issues with FDIC insurance in their lifetimes. So a lot of people are willing to take the risk and actually go towards this app, which by the way, iterates faster. It is more usable. It is more friendly. It is, has other products. To Kai's point, it is exciting. And so if I'm choosing between one and the other, I'm going to choose the one that generates the highest yield and that allows me to uh, have an easier product experience. So this is just beautiful. I love that point about FDIC, which is a, a watermark, but also ne not necessarily a, a useful one. And it's one of those things that everybody feels like they should have, but 
how much value does it really bring the consumer? There's a, I think Andy Bromberg has launched a new uh, app called Echo or Eco.com. Um, and that is like a, a neobank. A it, great example. But it's not a bank. Um, it, it entirely exists in as a wallet and you can use it every day. You can spend on it. You can do whatever. It would look and feel like a fintech wallet in every sense of the word, except it just lives and exists in stable coins. And I think that's super powerful. Giovanni, I saw your hand go up. Did you want to uh, add to, to any of the points here? Yeah, I think the other thing that's really exciting about this space is also the fact that we're actually lowering the bar of entry. Uh, when we think about, again, yield and investment products, you know, you're actually able to bring in very small dollar investors, whether that's, you know, opening it up so that they can invest in companies like Tala, um, provide the lending capital, or actually for the end underserved consumer to actually, again, be able to get into these investment products that otherwise they definitely could not. Um, and I would actually say, I mean, I think, you know, we did uh, a little session with Kai uh, within our company. And I think that was actually something really powerful uh, that you spoke about in terms of, again, even in the U.S., um, being able to see underrepresented communities actually being able to buy crypto assets as a way of wealth generation. Yeah, I, I'd say that this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm so excited and, and passionate about crypto, because I, I do believe that, you know, it can be this tool for for economic empowerment. And I think it's important that you have to kind of unpack, you know, it's when people think about crypto, it's not, you know, just all day trading, you know, meme coins, like the notion of dollar cost averaging, you know, having a small amount, you know, every month you know, into Bitcoin, I, I'd argue is, is not an irresponsible uh, financial behavior. We're now seeing new rewards programs on cards where you're earning Bitcoin back. Now that's a financial asset instead of airline miles or, or loyalty points. And so it's another way that people can start to participate, can start to own an asset class that is more accessible than many other asset classes. And then the other piece is that I'd argue it's almost like, you know, at least for me personally, crypto is like a, a growth hack for financial literacy, where, you know, just asking people the question of like, what is Bitcoin? You start to ask the question, what is money? What is the dollar? And regardless of how deep someone goes down the rabbit hole, I think that's a good question for people to ask. I think the more that we normalize talking about money and learning about money and how money has evolved in the past, how money can evolve in the future is better for everyone. And so if it's going to grab people's interest and pull them in and now you could talk about inflation and the impact on inequality, like that's a great thing to do rather than just say, OK, everyone should only invest in Bitcoin. I, I love that point uh, about sort of the uh, consumer learning through doing. Uh, it used to be the case that um, people thought finance was dull. If you said dollar cost averaging, you'd get a snooze. Um, and I think there's something really interesting about um, the unintended consequences of consumer protection regulation leading to financial exclusion. So what you do with regulation quite a lot is increase the cost of serving the consumer and therefore, the hurdle rate that somebody has to hit to make that consumer profitable is higher. Whereas actually, if you can bring that cost down, then surely they can be served um, and you can open it up. And that's exactly what Tala has done. And then the second macro movement is money as culture, like especially in uh, underserved communities where suddenly generating wealth is a, is a conversation that has an element of call to it. You hear rappers referencing Cash App in the, in the uh, kind of songs like that's on you cannot imagine that as a as a middle-aged white dude in your 50s like that's that's the, completely different to uh, what finance used to be and and I love that 
I love that that's happening. Um, sorry, you got me started there and I should go back to being a host. So host hat back on. All right, so uh, our good friends at YouGov surveyed their panelists for us before the show to get some sentiment data on how people feel about cryptocurrencies. No surprise, older men are the most likely to agree that cryptocurrencies are not to be trusted. Of the over 55-year-old men, 69% agree. Um, so interesting. Women are more likely to neither agree nor disagree on the statement. Um, the logical part of the species prevails. And a similar trend is true for those thinking crypto is the future online of online payments. 35% of men aged 18 to 24 agreed it is the future of online payments. But 69% of the over 55 said it's not the future of online payments. 40% of women across all age categories neither agreed nor disagreed. As you hear those statistics, what are your thoughts? Um, Shivani, let's let's start with you. Um, I mean, I think the the data is it's pretty uh, expected in that sense. Um, but I, I also think of it as, you know, the fact that Visa is already doing this, it it, it is the future. Uh, so in that sense, you know, whether it's online payments, I mean, the backbone of this is now being built with the usability of stablecoin, right? And so I keep going back to the consumer may not just may not know it, but it is the future. Yeah. So I, I agree with where we are currently in that in that sentiment, but I think uh, give it a few more months and we may see something change. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know when the last time um, you guys had the good fortune of speaking with teenagers, but it, it is absolutely a conversation on the, on the top of everybody's lips. And, and there is an element of, of responsibility there for sure. Um, but also uh, the fact that living in uh, Roblox and Fortnite, dealing with economies, especially in Roblox, where there is a whole economy, this is entirely normal to a generation of people that I would live in an internet economy and that there would be uh, things that are tradable and that capitalism has been normal for a generation that it just hasn't in many, many other ways. Um, Diogo, I mentioned at the beginning that the, you know, the prices are now coming down. You said that price is one of the least interesting things about crypto. Do you think that this is going to impact the appetite, uh, the demand? Are people going to get burnt or uh, will people still care? The thing that we've seen on every single bull run is that there are more people that stay in the ecosystem after it crashes than when it started. So it really doesn't matter anything else. Every single one of the five or six bull runs followed by crashes that we've had, you know, we're, we're, we're pros at this at this point. There's volatility. When we say there's volatility, this is what we mean. People can hear there's volatility and then ignore that volatility means that the price goes down and up. Um, that, that, that's what volatility is. The thing that I focus on is the engineers, uh, the amazing product people, the designers, the business builders, the founders, the entrepreneurs, the types of companies building products here that are coming to the space. It is a monotonically increasing function. It does not decrease after the price comes down. It increases when the price goes up, but it does not decrease when the price goes down. So every time we have a bull run, we inherit and we get more people building that are smarter, that are more capable than we had before the run-up. And that's what matters because what you want is to invest in a place that has a lot of potential, a huge, huge, huge market cap. We talk about crypto, but crypto is 25 different things and it can go after 25 different markets. And 
there's more smart people and there's a lot of capital being invested in these smart people building amazing businesses more than when we started. So that's really what the institutions that use Anchorage are looking at. Uh, the investors are looking at very long-term horizons. They believe in this and so they don't care that much about these um, short-term uh, volatility spikes. In fact, some of them look at it as an opportunity to get into the market and they got excited in this last bull run and now are looking at, at it as a great entry point. And the institutions like um, the, the large corporates and the institutions that are actually building products, then those are steady as it goes. Uh, there's one, like 16 months to build a product, 18 months to build a product, uh, maybe two years to actually get this to market that has started maybe six months ago, maybe 12 months ago, and we'll be ready in a year. Uh, and, and that doesn't change. It doesn't change the trajectory. These things will be built and shipped. I love that point on talent. Um, Kai, um, as you look at the the talent in the space and you look at what comes next, what do you think the, the sort of uh, next sort of 12, 18 months look like? I, I think Diogo mentioned a point there about there are builders and operators coming into the space. What are we going to start to see? Yeah, I think we're really excited about you know, all the developers that are you know, building, particularly on, on top of, of stable coins. Uh, and so I think with stable coins and payments, you know, we think the first you know use cases that you know we're starting to to see a bit are things like B2B payments, where you know companies are raising money in stable coins, they're paying employees, they're paying vendors in stable coins. And it used to just be crypto companies. And there are a lot of crypto companies now, and those crypto companies are growing quickly. And as they get bigger, their entire businesses are built on top of it. But now we're seeing non-crypto businesses. Uh, that have started to explore, you know, using stable coins for different type of, you know, cross-border payment use cases. Uh, and so I think that, you know, over the next 12 to 18 months, you know, there are going to be more and more businesses who have made or received a stable coin payment for the first time. And they're going to be more and more consumers. I think still today, um, you know, there are not that many consumers who've really experienced what it's like to make a cross-border payment, you know, in USDC. And, you know, the survey you mentioned, it is very generational, but it's also, if you've never used this before, it's, it's hard to have any reference point to compare it to, you know, in each bull market, more people come in, people start to use the technology, you know, some people leave because the price drops, others stay and build, and that leads to the next wave of products. And so I think we'll see a lot more in that area. Uh, and as uh, as Shivani said as well, if you look at the global demographics and you look at the markets where there are more young people, it typically skews emerging and it typically skews younger. Um, and how many of those have downloaded MetaMask or another wallet and had a play with uh, with what's possible? And if you are still a cynic and listening to the show, then uh, by all means, that's probably the best advice we can give you is have a try, spend some money that you are willing to lose a very small amount and have a play. Buy yourself a small NFT and, and have a go at this. And if you liked this, this conversation do remember to go subscribe to blockchain insider we'll have new episodes coming from july 14 uh, that wraps up today's discussion so thank you so much everybody for joining me uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies let's start with kai visa.com and i'd say for for developers fintechs uh you know the fintech fast track program is the way that we're really excited to interact with many uh diego if you're an institution and you're looking to build these types of products, uh, you should come to Anchorage.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at, at Diogo Monica. Fantastic. Shivani? Uh, you can just come to Chala.co. Uh, we're looking for great people to join the team. You can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, remember to subscribe to this podcast and go check out Blockchain Insider. And please don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us so, so much. Thank you very much and goodbye for now. <laughs>